Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I'll be talking to George Eaton and Lucy Fisher about women in Parliament and the upcoming reshuffle. Kate Mossman will be talking to Mark Lawson about Monty Python and Arthur Miller. And Ian Steadman and I will be discussing the new surveillance laws. Next week, it's rumoured that the Tories will have a reshuffle. I'm joined by Lucy Fisher and George Eaton to look ahead to that and talk about the broader issue of women in Parliament. Lucy, first of all, you spoke to Yvette Cooper, who's Labour's um, Shadow Home Secretary this week, and she's been talking about a summer campaign about FGM, about violence against women. Why is she campaigning on explicitly kind of feminist themes at the moment? Um, I think she's just seen that under the current government, all these issues have really fallen by the wayside. From last week's Crown prosecution figures, we've seen that rape cases and child sex offences, the prosecutions and convictions are going down, and the sense that the police aren't looking at these cases, the authorities aren't caring about it enough, has prompted Labour's campaign. And George, we're all on tenterhooks, I think is the only way to describe it, at the thought of a, a cabinet reshuffle before we go away for recess. Cameron's got a tough job because he knows he'll be criticised for the lack of women that he's got in his cabinet. I think it's now four full-time, five attending because um, of the way that that works. Who would you put money on to move up, shuffle up the ranks? And has he got a problem in that he's going to have to over-promote people who aren't ready? Hmm. Well, those uh, I think you can expect to see move into the cabinet are Esther McVeigh, who's currently the employment minister, uh, Liz Trust, who's currently uh, minister at um, education, I think Nikki Morgan will be given a full post in, in the cabinet. She's currently uh, financial secretary to the Treasury. There was this great moment when she was made women's minister and then... Oh, no, Say Javid was made equalities minister and then he was realised that he was women's minister, so then they had to make a women's minister and then it was realised that the women's minister still reported to a man. What a great day that yes, was. Yes, no, it was, it was even by sort of David Cameron's standards and standards of the coalition, it was a sort of classic omni-shambles yeah. moment. Um, I mean, more women, women more broadly. I mean, David Cameron set this target in opposition of having a third of ministers in his government as women, and he's not going to reach that target. He wants to get as, as close to it as possible. And um, part of the problem is that there's quite a, a limited pool for him to select from because uh, the Tories only have 48 female MPs out of 306. And if you discount those who are already um, in, in, in the cabinet and government, 
um, those who've uh, resigned or been sacked and who don't want to rejoin the government or who are focused on fighting to keep their seats and those who uh, perhaps aren't considered suitable for government, you're not left with a huge amount of people to choose from. I find this absolutely fascinating because Cameron has several times has talked about this and he's talked about the problem in selections, about the idea that they're looking for the perfect son-in-law, not necessarily the perfect candidate, about the fact that they the, the selectors who work very hard are more likely to be, say, socially conservative than the population. So they like to be. I think the average age of a, someone in a conservative association is about 69. Um Matthew Parris wrote a column at the weekend saying that one of the trouble is that women just aren't ballsy enough. I mean, how much credence do you give to that, Lucy, in the idea that women don't push themselves forward at selection meetings? I think it's an interesting idea um, that women tend to be more balanced, perhaps more reasoned. Um, as Matthew Parris pointed out, if they don't know the answer, they'll perhaps say that, whereas a man might be more ballsy and, and go ahead and aver an opinion. Um even some of the women I hugely respect as being very confident and very outspoken in Parliament, such as Sarah Wollaston, um, you know, she's the first to say that she needed that call to arms from the Prime Minister to say to women, you know, you may not have gone to political meetings before, but have a go, stand to be an MP, you know, get involved in the selection process. So if it, even confident women need that encouragement I think we're not seeing enough from the Conservative Party right now to encourage more women. I have to say, I love Matthew Paris as a columnist, but I really disagreed with this one of his because all the research showed, and we knew this when the Sheryl Sambo book came out, that confidence in women is not read universally positively. Where you might think that a guy sort of blustering through an answer is just him being, you know, kind of, well, he's, you know, he's having a go, he's, you know, he's, he knows his own mind, then you read that as kind of either shrillness or, you know, nagging in women. And those things can be very gendered and there is a bigger problem. Um, Ed Miliband's in a relatively luxurious situation, isn't he, George? Because he's already got 14 women in the shadow cabinet. Might there be some more over the summer coming through? Yeah, so Labour are not uh, ruling uh, a reshuffle in at the moment, but they're also not ruling one out, so they're keeping their options open. I don't think there are going to be any major changes. I mean, Ed Miliband has confirmed, for instance, that Ed Balls will remain Shadow Chancellor until the general election. Um, he had quite a wide-ranging reshuffle, of course, last year. Um, but um, one um, tip that I, I have that has been made to me is that... Uh, Lucy Powell, who is currently the uh, child care minister, the shadow child care minister, and used to be Miliband's deputy chief of staff, will enter the shadow cabinet at some point, and Miliband's keen to get her in there before the general election. And Lucy, what do you make of Harriet Harman's intervention last week? So she gave a speech in which she essentially said that she thinks that she was elected deputy leader of the Labour Party. If she'd been a man, she thinks she would have ended up being deputy prime minister under Gordon Brown. Was she rolling the pitch for criticising the other party or shoring up her own position? I think probably she was doing both. Uh, it made her look very reasonable to criticise uh, David Cameron by also criticising you know, her former leader in the Labour Party. But also it's a canny move and then it makes it very difficult for Ed Miliband not to select her as Deputy Prime Minister upon winning next year. So uh, hats off to her on that one. It's very difficult, though. I mean, if they go into coalition with the Lib Dems, they're going to have to offer, a, you know, I mean, Nick Clegg, if, if he was mm. still leader of the Lib Dems, is going to need a pretty sweet office of state. And I thought Deputy Prime Minister would have to go to him. Yes, I mean, it partly depends, and I, I wrote about this a few weeks ago, whether the Lib Dems take the approach that they took last time, which is 
to have uh, their leader or as, as deputy prime minister unable to range across all the departments or whether to take on a few individual departments and to own those departments and so for their leader to have a department of his own i mean say the foreign office or or the home office um labor figures have suggested to me in the past that Miliband's quite keen not to have the post of deputy prime minister for because it's um it's excessive administrative cost it's not it's not necessary um, but it will be hard, particularly because um, there are many in, in Labour, who, including Miliband, who emphasise the virtues of having a balanced team. Mm. It will be hard for him to argue that you shouldn't have um, at least you know, one woman in one of the senior positions. And if it's not Chancellor, then, then Deputy Prime Minister is, is the next one. And finally, George, one quick question on the NHS, which is Labour's big push over the summer. How much headway are they getting that? Are they just talking to their base who they who are going to vote Labour anyway? Are they winning any converts? Mm. Well, I think that there is a political interest for them in driving it up the agenda. And um, I think there are undoubtedly um, people who don't support them at the moment, but who do care a lot about the NHS. Um, the key is for that, the future of the NHS, to become one of the defining questions at the election. Because if that's the case... Uh, then the answer in, in terms of who you vote for is more likely to be Labour because people overwhelmingly think Labour would be the best party on the NHS. So according to the most recent YouGov poll, I mean, they lead by 12 points on the issue, which is a bigger lead than they have on any other. Um, and so one shadow cabinet minister said to me this week, you know, after the economy, that that's likely to be the top issue. We, we really need the NHS to be next, not not immigration. I mean, they trail the Conservatives quite badly on immigration. Um, so I think that is the that is the aim for the summer. And I'd expect there'll be a big announcement at, at a conference um, in terms of providing the solution to some of the problems they've identified. I mean, as last year, you saw they spent the whole summer talking about cost of living, and then they came out with the energy price freeze at conference. I expect they'll do something similar on the NHS. Well, in that case, we will look forward both to conference and to the reshuffle and pick those themes up next time. Thank you very much to Lucy and George. It was the night where everyone expected the Spanish Inquisition. Yes, Monty Python are back. Mark Lawson, our critic at large, has been to see them. Here he talks to arts editor Kate Mossman about what he expected and what he got. Uh, both, really. I, I went to the first one um, and I was very excited and um, because it is so long. I mean, it's um, at least 25 years since they performed together. And um, so I had a real sense of excitement, but also combined with apprehension. Because um, I think we have this. I think we always know that had they been, you know, were they ever to be possible, Beatles reunions, uh, which now can't happen, or ABBA, um, there's just a terrible possibility of disappointment. Mm. I also, you know, you try to have some distance as a journalist. Um, and even so, when the five surviving Pythons walked out at the beginning at the O2 um, in their tuxedos, um, it was genuinely uh, thrilling and even slightly moving and um so i was quite surprised by that i mean it, it felt like a seriously big big event mm. and had you felt i mean was there pressure on them years back to do this or is it something that they've responded to because everybody else seems to be going on reunion tours from you know rock bands to to old acts like this getting back together 
Well, they've always been under pressure. I mean, I've... um over the last 20 years or so, I mean, interviewed all the surviving ones um, separately and in, in, in odd combinations. And I always ended up saying, look, we've got to do this, you know, the ABBA or Beatles question. Uh, and they knew it was coming in, but they'd always, it was actually um, Michael Palin who always resisted on the interesting and rather impressive grounds that once Graham Chapman was dead, there could be no Python reunion. Mm. Um, but again, I think an example of Michael Palin's famous kindness and niceness, which are genuine, um, because a couple of the others needed the money um, due to uh, rearrangements in their personal lives. <laughs> um, John Cleese and um, Terry Jones, it's well known. Uh, Palin agreed to do it. And Again, it was impressive and moving that they found a way of solving the problem Palin had because um, the scene changes are covered by um, the playing in of clips from the TV shows on giant screens. And so Graham Chapman is a very strong presence in the show. And so I think that's another impressive thing about it. So really, um, it, it is the six of them together. Mm. That seems to be something that's happening more and more with, um, I know that Dweezil Zappa's show, um, in honour of Frank Zappa, now contains a giant pixelated version of Frank on a screen. <laughs> and uh, Freddie Mercury is soon going to be sort of beamed in the back of Queen shows as well. So in a way, it's a... It is It is fun, strangely moving, isn't it, when you see the... It is. I used to worry about it because I thought it was quite mawkish. I think it depends how long they've been dead. I mean, I, I think if you if it's done too soon after their death, it just is quite upsetting yes. and makes you uneasy. Um, but I think at this distance... Um, I mean, the main problem with the whole thing, because I, I think I've said moving or touching... Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A couple of times now. Um, I think that's a bit the problem really in that although Python was never politically radical or I mean it was controversial as we know from Life of Brian being banned Um, and it also depended on shock and surprise I mean their the the sheer oddness of their sketches I mean the Paris um, sketch or the philosopher's football team or the Spanish Inquisition they depend on surprise and um, that's all gone Um, one of the most surreal experiences I've had was that um, what happens is that uh, two actors who aren't the Pythons come onto stage and they deliver a couple of lines of dialogue which 20,000 people in the audience realize at the beginning of the Spanish Inquisition sketch. And I wrote uh, in my notebook at that point, everyone expects the Spanish Inquisition. Yes. And it just seemed, so, um, it just seemed um, a symptom of the problem with the whole enterprise. Uh, is that once people are expecting the Spanish Inquisition to burst into <laughs> that suburban living room, um, then something has gone wrong. Um, and a certain cosiness about the, I suppose, the atmosphere at these huge, these giant road shows that like, they began with Newman and Badil, didn't they, back in yeah. the early nineties? But that that sense of a of a, a a laugh of recognition echoing around this huge room kind of ruins the joke a lot of the time. 
I think that is a problem. And I think you have to remember that, you know, and it wasn't just Mary Whitehouse, the morality campaigner. A lot of people hated Monty Python. I remember one of my grandfathers um, was vituperative about how stupid and pointless the whole thing was. <laughs> Um, and it was quite important that they were hated. There were people in the BBC who hated them and, uh, you know, did everything they could to get them off air. Mm. And so you're right to go into the O2 and this great bowl of warmth and love. Um, I suspect that Cleese in particular would have found that quite and Terry Gilliam would have found that very odd and yes. difficult. Thank you. The, the other thing that you've, you've been seeing for us recently was the... Um parts of the Arthur Miller season um, yeah. and most recently the the Crucible which I think is playing at the Old Vic um, you make the very interesting point in your in your column this week that Miller was actually out of fashion for the last three decades of his career why was that I mean it seems so surprising now considering as you say they're such topical they remain such topical plays um, it was partly to do with modern um, medicine I think in that um, Playwriting careers are very short, and uh, on the whole, I mean, most playwrights have at most 10 years of success. Um, even Shakespeare wrote most of the great plays within a period of about eight to 10 years. Chekhov wrote his four great plays within seven years. Miller wrote his four masterpieces within the space of about seven, eight years. Um, and in the past, um, certainly with Chekhov and Shakespeare, they conveniently died. Um, <laughs> Arthur Miller lived to the age of 90 and went on writing to the age of 90. Um, but I think, rather more to his credit, he, he went out of fashion because um, he was such a severe critic mm. of America. Um, I mean, if you look at what those major plays are about, Death of a Salesman is a still stinging attack on capitalism's indifference to people. Yes. All My Sons is about corporate malfeasance. Um, the Crucible uh, is about mass hysteria, accusation, groupthink. Mm. Um, you know, what we would say, some people now would call political correctness, the term wasn't used then. Um, and uh, A View from the Bridge is about um, intolerance of immigrants and mm. So, you know, all of these critiques of America, which annoyed America and led to him not being staged there in the final years, um, uh, final decades of his life, but he was taken up in Europe and um, this has continued really. It's yes. a sort of unofficial Arthur Miller season and it just happens that um, the uh, three theatres in London this summer have done three of the great plays, but uh, a great privilege to see the three of them mm in a row and um you drew some interesting in parallels between the uh um the recent paedophile scandals in the in the crucible and this idea a particular line that you picked out you know is the accuser always holy now i thought that was a sort of a, that line has a lot of resonance yeah in the, i mean i i expressed it carefully in the piece and i i'd express it carefully again a chill went through the audience when john proctor the um farmer who has been accused of and his wife of consorting with the devil um, when that line was said, um, a genuine shiver went through the audience. Um, and you do, you know, we have to be careful. Um, some terrible, some clearly terrible and evil people have gone to jail in recent cases. On the other hand, there are a number, there are a large number of other cases in which um, juries have not found the evidence compelling or the cases have never reached court that people's finances and reputation have been mm. destroyed. Um, I mean, I thought particularly of 
the Nigel Evans case, the um, Deputy Speaker of the House of Commons, in which um, he was cleared in court. Um, a number of the so-called victims had not even wanted the case to be brought against him and made that clear. Mm. And yet his reputation and his uh, finances have been destroyed. And I think um, it, great plays take on the meaning of the time that they're um, in which they're staged. Yes. And I think that's clearly true with the Crucible. And it's interesting because I, it happened to open on Thursday, which was the night before Rolf Harris was um, sentenced. Yes. And, and as I say, I mean, no, I think nobody really can argue with what happened in that case. But on the other hand, it was also the beginning of this great wave of, you know, what may turn out to be hysteria about um, alleged paedophilia in Westminster. Mm. And I think Miller has a lot to say about that. Mm. Because I think um, in the in the media, um, in certain companies, HR departments, um, and in the CPS, there sometimes does seem to be a feeling that accusation is fact. And I think that gives the player tremendous power. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, is the... the Old Vic's production is presumably still running for a little while of The Crucible. Is it on this summer? Um, yes, uh, well, it, which is great. Because it, it, it actually is, I'm, I'm happy to say, it's one of the best productions I've ever seen of, I think, one of the greatest plays ever written. And it's on until September the 23rd. Thursday 10th of July, the government announced new surveillance legislation, the so-called DRIP laws, which allow them to store information for longer. Um, I'm joined by our tech writer, Ian Stedman. So first of all, what what's behind this? Why suddenly did this come out? Um, well, th this goes back to 2006, when the EU said that um, national governments within the EU could collect all kinds of metadata about uh, citizens. Uh, and that was really regarding phone calls and stuff like that. So it would be not the, a recording of anyone's phone calls, but um, a recording of... Who, who you, you called call and, yeah. and how long you or called that. them for, how many times you called them in a month. Yeah, um, and that was all fine and dandy as far as the um, security services were concerned. And then in April this year, the Attorney General of the EU um, said, hang on, that directive is actually in violation of the EU Charter on Fundamental Human Rights. Uh, and so retroactively, we have to kind of change the law. And that caused particularly some governments, particularly the British government, to freak out a bit because um, it meant that all their very comprehensive surveillance apparatus was uh, in violation of EU law. There was a judicial review that is currently waiting to go. And this law that was announced today is in response to that April ruling, where they basically want to pass a law to preempt the removal of the directive. So they're going to rush this through extremely fast. Yeah. The legislation is coming through next week. It looks like they pretty much have sewn it up, the three parties yeah. together. Um, it's very much keeping things kind of some things are the same some, some things are different um labor and the lib dems i mean first of all we have to recognize that labor were very happy with this arrangement in the first place and the and the coalition has just continued it but um it's a surprise from the lib dems though isn't it because they yeah. were against what they called the so-called snoopers charter and this they is are very fundamentally the party of civil liberties yeah. the snoopers charter um as proposed by theresa may the fundamental part of that was that all metadata would be um that's generated in the uk even if a company like say google is outside the uk anyone who's inside the uk who uses their service their metadata has to be stored within the uk and uh, within access, uh, like people with um, the police or whoever can access it within the UK. Um, but that same 
requirement is in this new law. So it's the same as the Snoopers Charter, the whole 12 months thing. It's just that it's um, some, there's going to be a US style oversight uh, committee, which is like the one that the NSA has. It's like the FISA courts. Yeah, which famously that, doesn't really do anything. And you can't find out what they do because it's all secret anyway. I yeah. mean, this is part of the, the justification this time is given as being a terrorist threat, people leaving to going to become mm. jihadis in Syria, uh, paedophilia, and sort of nebulous criminality. <laughs> yes, um, as if the first two aren't also included in that blanket term of criminals. I mean, Yeah, so, I mean, from my point of view, it just seemed to be that the government that rolls through emergency legislation to counter a specific threat, whether or not that threat later turns out to be overblown. And it never gets around to going, which because it's very hard to say... Oh, well, terror threat over now. <laughs> Everything's definitely fine and definitely nothing bad will a key, happen. A key thing about this is that it is it has a sunset clause. At the end of 2016, it expires and there has to be a debate over uh, maintaining it or just letting it fall out of uh, enforcement or whatever. Mm. You, I don't know how to describe a law. Like, but, um, it's, it's impossible, though, isn't it? I mean, you saw the same thing about the knife crime thing and it was, you know, the Lib Dems made a stand over that. But you will never lose votes by being mm. mean to criminals, well, as, and, uh, if that or how that is, yeah, that is Dave, And David Cameron has specifically come out and said that he doesn't want to be the prime minister who has to go on TV after a terrorist attack and say, I could have done more, but I, di- I didn't. I didn't stop it. Which is, uh, you know, there's that whole thing about if you want to give him a little security, you don't he deserve would, liberty. Yeah. But, um, deserves neither, yeah. I think all three pl- main political parties are very much on the more security please sort of side of that argument. Do you think there is likely, I know there have been a lot of anger about it in the kind of free internet bits of the internet, mm. if you see what I mean, but do you think there is anything that will happen or is it just an unstoppable juggernaut that's going there? Well, the, I mean, parliamentary wise, uh, all three parties support it and it is going to be passed short of anything amazing happening between now and uh, it's going to be debated very quickly on Tuesday and then passed on Thursday. Um, but the fact is that the, dire- the directive that enabled this kind of mass surveillance was ruled illegal by the Attorney General of the EU. That hasn't changed. So even though the original law that was passed in response to the 2006 announcement is, you know, that is going to be, um, that was going to be repealed under uh, judicial review, this appears like it should be vulnerable to the same kind of judicial review. So maybe they're just trying to postpone it and knock it down the, the line a bit. Or by... maybe someone's got a hope that we won't be part of the European Convention on Human Rights. Maybe, uh, yes, uh, that is also something, yeah. Well, we'll keep an eye on this story and thank you very much, Ian. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Our theme tune is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons, and our producer is Philip Morn. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. 
I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts.